Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. John had been watching from his vantage point in heaven as Christ broke open one seal after another on what appeared to be God's last will and testament concerning the earth and its inhabitants. As the first four seals were opened, John saw peace followed by conflict, famine and death unleashed upon the earth. The fifth seal turned his attention to heaven, where John saw the souls of many who had died for their faith in Christ, crying out to God for justice, and the Lord urging them to have patience as he worked out his eternal plan. Finally, as chapter 6 came to a close, we saw the sixth seal opened and the universe begin to be affected. John detailed a great earthquake and terrifying celestial events that left those who still refused to call on the Lord hiding in caves and wishing for death. It's an interesting thing to me that mankind really hasn't changed since Adam and Eve tried to hide from God in the garden. Instead of turning to him in repentance, they prefer to try and escape his attention. Well, with the sixth seal broken, we anticipate the opening of the seventh seal. And yet, at this key point, God inserts an encouragement for John, showing him more of what shall be in heaven, giving him and us time to recover from the horror of what had previously been revealed. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Wind is often seen as a symbol of God's Holy Spirit, such as in John chapter 3, for example, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, likening the powerful, unstoppable nature of the Holy Spirit to the wind. Also at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon God's people, we're told a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. But because of wind's potential to destroy things with its incredible strength, Scripture also uses wind as a symbol for God's judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, God's influence in the lives of evildoers is pictured as a wind. For example, in Isaiah 17 verse 13, God reveals that though the ungodly roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like 
tumbleweed before a gale. And also, when vowing to judge rebellious Israel in Hosea chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, God promised, and I quote, I will have no compassion, even though he thrives among his brothers. An east wind from the Lord will come blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. Here in Revelation, the four angels at what is seen to be the different compass points of the earth are instructed to hold back the wind of God's judgment until something has been accomplished. An angel arises carrying with him the seal of the living God. This title, the living God, is one that the writers of scripture love to use and it's very expressive. For the God of the Bible is very different to the dead gods worshipped by other people. By contrast, he is a God who speaks and who acts, and he is intimately concerned with the welfare of his people. And in the idea of him being a living God, there is at the same time both a promise and a warning, for he is faithful to his people and he is not to be underestimated. He will act. Before this time of terror and devastation comes, the faithful are to be marked with the seal or in Greek, the sphrachis of the living God upon their foreheads in order that they may survive it. In John's day, a sphrachis or seal was often a signet ring or a stamp that was a way of marking ownership on that which had been purchased. For example, if a wealthy man purchased something in the market, that purchase would be marked with his stamp and held ready to be collected or redeemed by the owner or his servants at some future time. The mark of the seal was proof that the price had been paid and that ownership had already been transferred. As a Christ follower right now, you've already been sealed according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 that says you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Revelation tells us, though, that in the tribulation period, there are others who will be sealed as God's possession. And it's important that we look to the text for the description of who they are. Verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And John then goes on to state that 12,000 were sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and the tribe of Benjamin. These Jews are sealed as being servants of our God, and later in Revelation 14 verse 1, God will reveal that they are marked with the name of Jesus Christ.
The number, 144,000, may not be a literal number, but rather a symbolic representation of perfection or completeness. The number 12 comes up at different times throughout Scripture, associated with people or groups that God has chosen. For example, there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel and 12 apostles called and commissioned by Christ in his earthly ministry. So here, with the number being made up of 12 times 12 times 1,000, one may see this 144,000 as perhaps being a way to underscore the completeness of God's choice. As I mentioned, we will see these 144,000 again later in Revelation, but they're not the only group of people revealed here to John, because as he looks forward in time to the end of the tribulation, he declares in verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As John's eyes gaze into heaven, he sees the redeemed from every tribe and nation standing before the Lamb. We're told that they are clothed in white and hold palm branches in their hands as they celebrate Jesus as their Savior. Now, it is common in the Middle East for palm branches to be waved in celebration at great victories. And as these believers stand before the throne, they declare that God reigns and that he is the author of their salvation. Verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. All of heaven praises God for his faithfulness because of his majesty. He is given glory. The worshippers speak of his wisdom and offer thanks to him for the grace that he gives. He is our creator and he is our redeemer. And as such, he deserves our thanks and honor. For we are nothing without his great power and strength. He is the one who is the same forever and ever. God wants to be sure that John understands who these people before the throne are. And so, in verse 13, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude are all Christ followers who came out of the great tribulation. For even in the midst of the chaos, people are turning to the Lord in repentance. Dirty robes in scripture speak of a life stained by sin. And so how were these tribulation saints' lives washed clean? 
John is told that they were made white in the blood of the Lamb, for it is only through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus that we can be made pure to stand before God's throne. Those saved out of the great tribulation are saved because they're cleansed of their sin by Christ's sacrificial blood. Jew and Gentile alike must both accept him as Lord and Saviour, for it is by his blood we come to know purity and victory that we could never attain on our own. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Always know what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, because of the blood of the Lamb, they're able to come before the throne of God. They have purpose and serve him always in heaven. God himself will dwell among them and he will spread his protection over them. Hardship will be no more. There will be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more discomfort and no more tears. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. I love the way that God's truths turn the world as we know it on its head. In his kingdom, it is the lamb who is the shepherd. Jesus himself declared in John chapter 10 verse 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. Not only will he lead us to living water without which we cannot survive, but he promises also to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Without the presence and the comfort that Christ gives, all that we suffer in life would truly be unbearable. But with Christ as our shepherd, nothing can happen to us that we cannot bear. For we know there is a day coming when all of that will pass away and we'll stand in his presence. So what can we learn then from this passage of scripture? What's the message just before the final seal is opened? It is that even in the midst of terrible calamity, God knows those who are his. People can still receive his forgiveness and mercy to the end. And when they've passed through that time of trial on the earth, they will come into his presence in which sorrow and pain are gone and there's nothing but peace and joy. But now as God concludes his encouraging digression, John's focus will be upon the final seal to be broken. And you'll remember that this seventh seal is thought to contain all of the seven trumpet judgments and more besides. Chapter 8 verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We have to imagine the scene in heaven. Up until now, it's been a place of unimaginable light and worship with shouts of praise going up from a great multitude. But as the lamb breaks the last seal and opens the scroll containing the plan of God, there is silence in heaven. Everything waits for God's command. 
When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Another messenger then comes to stand before the golden altar in heaven and he has a gold censer in his hand. This censer was a container filled with fragrant incense that was an important part of worship among God's people. In the tabernacle or temple on earth, there was a golden altar of incense before the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. Incense was burned on that golden altar twice a day at prayer times as a symbol of the prayers of God's people rising before his throne. Here in Revelation, we see a similar link being made as the prayers of all the saints or God's people are mixed with the offered incense and the two of them rise as sweet perfume before the throne of the Lord. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Verse 6, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the trumpet is always the symbol of the intervention of God in history. Before we go on, we should note that there are differing views about what these seven trumpets herald. Some people believe that each trumpet blast brings the deployment of a different weapon of war. Some believe it's far more likely that because these are judgments from God, they may be more natural in origin and could quite easily be acts of God that mankind could neither negotiate their way out of nor well prepare for. So let's read what the trumpets signal and what we can be sure about them from the text. Verse 7, the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up a third of the trees were burned up and all of the green grass was burned up. The first trumpet brings hail and fire mixed with blood that causes huge devastation. But I want you to notice that only a third of the earth is affected. That is important because we see God's mercy in that its effects are only partial. I think the purpose of this partial judgment in Revelation is to turn people's hearts to the Lord so that they would cry out to him for salvation. Verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. John doesn't know how to describe the second trumpet judgment and what he saw. All he can say is that something like a mountain splashed down into the sea. 
Once more, the effects of this judgment are limited, even though they still affect much. A third of the sea turned to blood, and this really could be a red tide, which is a type of algae bloom that causes the water to turn red and is toxic to fish and marine life. This water turned to what looks like blood reminds us of the first plague that God visited upon Egypt, which came in Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 to 21. As Moses struck the water with his rod, the waters of the Nile turned to blood and the fishes of the river died. But notice once more that the effects of this judgment are partial. A third of the sea creatures are killed and a third of the ships were either destroyed or ruined. Can you imagine the devastation? Rotting marine life is everywhere along with foul-smelling water, to say nothing of the economic devastation caused by losing that many vessels. We don't know how the ships are destroyed or if they're ruined because they're contaminated. However, If a meteorite caused all of this, the possibility of a tsunami, a large ocean wave, would have to be considered. Many of us saw the devastating effects of what happened in Japan's tsunami, for example, when the huge wave that was caused by, in that case, an earthquake, carried ships far inland before breaking them apart. Verse 10 tells us of the third trumpet judgment. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The third trumpet judgment causes the poisoning of a third of the fresh water. Perhaps a third is not really a literal number here, but it's used to indicate that, again, there are limits to this judgment. We don't know exactly what this great star was that John saw falling to the earth, blazing like a torch, but whatever it is, its effects are significant. A third of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. This judgment actually follows a warning God gave through the prophet Jeremiah found in Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 14 to 15. There God reprimanded his people for their stubborn unfaithfulness because they'd turned away from him to serve false gods of their own making. He promised he would make them eat bitter food or wormwood and drink poisoned water. And since then, wormwood has always symbolized the bitterness of the judgment of God on the disobedient. Wormwood is still a plant that is used today as a pesticide. And when consumed in the right quantities, it can lead to stupor, convulsions and death according to Purdue's Medical Plant Index. We can't be sure exactly what this pollutant is, but here at the third trumpet, we cannot be sure exactly what this pollutant is here at the third trumpet, but what we do know is that it has the same limited effect as the earlier judgments. Verse 12, 
The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. The fourth trumpet judgment affects the sun, moon and stars. Despite its partial effects, this judgment is terrible nonetheless. For when the light of the heavenly bodies is dimmed in this way, it will have a huge effect on the earth, causing both lower temperatures and less light by which food can be grown. This trumpet judgment is very similar to the ninth plague of Egypt in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, the plague of darkness. There we are told, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Two things to notice from the Egyptian plague are that firstly, those who belong to God somehow escaped the full effects of it. And secondly, it was for a limited period of time. The fourth trumpet judgment may also be for a limited period of time too, because when we look at the seven bowls of wrath in Revelation 16, we'll see that this effect on the sun seems to be reversed. The main thing to notice with all of these judgments so far is that out of mercy, God limits their effects. Why would he do that? Well, God does not delight in bringing calamity upon his creation. In fact, the prophet Jonah says that he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. However, he does want all people to come to repentance and he will use trials to turn people's hearts toward him if he has to. There is yet more for John to see though in verse 13. As I watched, I heard an angel that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Here we have another pause in God's revelation to John, which is used to emphasize what's to happen next. Three trumpet blasts are still to sound, but for the moment there's a pause as another angel cries out a warning. Some translations declare that this is an eagle that announces these three words. But, you know, the eagle, particularly in the Old Testament, is often a symbol of God himself. So whoever the messenger is, he brings a warning of unparalleled misery. Woe is defined in the English dictionary as being grief that comes as a result of a serious suffering. The fact that the word woe is repeated three times is important. In John's day, if you wanted to say that something was as good or as bad as it could ever be, you would repeat the word three times. For example, 
Previously, we saw all of heaven cry, holy, 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 when they worshipped God, meaning that he is the holiest of all and there is none like him. So the fact here that woe is repeated three times in verse 13 emphasizes that the most terrible suffering is about to take place. And who will be the recipients of these terrible woes? These woes are to come upon the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, upon those who do not follow Christ, those who belong to the Antichrist. They are the people, the martyrs, asked God to judge in Revelation 6 when the fifth seal was opened. We see this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, used again and again to describe those who don't believe in Christ. But in Revelation 13, 7, We'll learn a little bit more about them, but you have to wait until we get there. Notice that this messenger here in Revelation 8.13 cries out in advance of the woes, underscoring God's mercy yet again as he gives warning of what is to come. Now, next week, as we look at these final three trumpet judgments in Revelation chapter 9, we'll see what the Old Testament prophets reveal to be the great and terrible day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are a God of mercy and that you bring these judgments only in part in order to turn people's hearts toward you. We thank you so much for your kindness to us. Lord, help us to spread the gospel message of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.